Introducing Bluehost Cloud, ultra-fast WordPress hosting with 100% uptime. Want a website with unmatched power, speed, and control? Of course you do. And now you can have all three with Bluehost Cloud, the new web hosting plan from Bluehost. With 100% uptime and incredibly speedy load times, your WordPress websites will be dependable and lightning fast on a global scale. Plus, your sites can handle even the biggest traffic spikes without going down or lagging. And with Bluehost Cloud, you get 24-7 WordPress priority support, meaning you're connected to WordPress experts anytime you need them. Not to mention, you automatically get daily backups and world-class security. So, what are you waiting for? Get Bluehost Cloud today by visiting bluehost.com. That's bluehost.com. Hey everybody, this is Prof. CJ. Welcome to the Dangerous History Podcast. I am, as always, your humble guerrilla scholar warrior and professional dangerous history dork, among many other titles I've made up and given to myself. Coming to you this time from the Silver Bullet, my little Hyundai Accent hatchback 2014 Silver rolling podcast studio on my way home from a hard day doing my best to emulate Socrates by teaching impiety and corrupting the minds of the young. And I'm not even sure, honestly, if I'm going to use this or not. It's going to depend on how it comes out, not just in terms of of the uh, production quality, which is always throwing the dice in the car to a degree, but also in terms of the content, because you see... I'm talking with absolutely no notes, which I don't think I've ever done a podcast episode of the Dangerous History Podcast before with absolutely no notes. I don't think I have. Sometimes I have detailed notes, sometimes I have very basic notes with, with you know, very minimal skeletal outline of something, um, and, and I don't stick rigidly to my notes all the time. I get on digressions when the mood strikes me and so on. But I don't think I've ever gone completely noteless before, unless I'm forgetting one. Um, even the episodes I've done in the car previously, I usually had like a, a little bit of notes taped to the steering wheel or taped to the console or something like that to kind of keep me on track. So I am off the reservation this time, which may mean that I'm about to get slaughtered or may mean I'm about to uh, achieve something good. Who the hell knows? I'm rolling the dice. If you're hearing this, if I actually did post this to my site and uploaded it as an episode of the podcast, then I suppose it must have come out at least good enough that I wasn't ready to just shit can it immediately. So, here we go. Now, the topic that I wanted to talk about is something I've been thinking about off and on uh, recently, and that is banksters and control freaks. And I was thinking um, of, you know, the various individuals that I'm considering on doing DHP Villains episodes on in the future, and and I was thinking about 
all sorts of, you know, the, the worst characters in history who um, reduce or eliminate people's freedoms. And I don't just mean the, the gigantic mass murderers, although they would definitely fit the bill, but even the more um, subtle kind of smiley-faced fascists and so on throughout history who maybe didn't even get mass numbers of people killed, but reduced people's freedom in some way, that sort of thing, right? And it dawned on me that when you look at all of the the people who range from just like mildly annoying historical figures to people who are the horrible worst crimes against humanity perpetrators most of them can be categorized into one of two archetypical categories banksters and control freaks now by bankster of course i mean a uh not just literal banksters like Robert Morris or J.P. Morgan, though certainly they would be prime examples, but I mean also anyone who is a really big, successful, influential example of a political entrepreneur. Now, if you don't know that, that concept of political entrepreneur, it comes from a categorization of entrepreneurs in American history made by the libertarian or libertarian-ish type historian uh, Burton Folsom in his classic book, The Myth of the Robber Barons, which is a fairly short little book but busts a lot of economic myths about American history. And uh, I highly recommend it if you haven't uh, ever read it. And in that book, one of the key insights of several that he makes in this short little book is that you can really find two categories of entrepreneurs, of successful businessmen in American history, and presumably this is the case in other countries as well. And those are political entrepreneurs whose success, if they achieve success, is due entirely or at least in large measure to their successful currying of political favor, right? So these are the businessmen who, if you look at their business and, and how it became successful, it's due entirely or at least in large measure to getting the influence of politicians and getting the government, whether state, local, federal, or all of the above, to do various things to help out that business. This can take the form of subsidies, it can take the form of bailouts, it can take the form of... Um, hobbling potential competitors, it can take the form, in its most extreme cases, of, of government-sanctioned monopoly, and so on, right? So those are market, oh, sorry, those are political entrepreneurs, and they are in contrast with market entrepreneurs. Market entrepreneurs are the good ones. They're the entrepreneurs whose success is due purely to being successful on the open market, to providing the goods and services to consumers that consumers voluntarily fork over their money for. They provide the things that people want or need at a price that consumers are willing and able to pay. And Myth of the Robber Barons, he goes over uh, several examples from different phases of American history um, looking at, at this phenomenon. And uh, so, you know, check check that out to get some of those examples. I'm, I'm not going to go through those here. But that's that's your bankster. The person might literally be a banker. Or they might just be some kind of a wealthy, powerful business person who, when you look into how they made their dough, is due in large part or perhaps even entirely to the state somehow. And so prime examples of the more prominent banksters 
in American history would include Robert Morris from the colonial and early republic period, J.P. Morgan from the late 19th to the early 20th century. Um, the Rockefeller family, you know, started off in oil, but eventually they got into the, the banking arena as well as part of their economic war with the, Rock, with the, um, with the Morgans. And of course, culminating in the person of David Rockefeller, who was, as far as I know, the first prominent member of the Rockefeller family to have banking be like his career, his, his specialty. And if you look at these sorts of people, and, and many others as well, these are not the only ones, these are just some of the biggest and most notorious ones. We could also throw out um, the, let's see, the, the Harriman family. I would consider banksters, even though banking wasn't their primary means of acquiring their wealth, but they're kind of of that type. Um, a, a lot of the other big Wall Street banking firms, you know, the Warburgs, etc., etc., um, in in Europe, and of course, eventually having a global global reach, the Rothschilds would be in this bankster category. In modern American history, you could also include the larger milita- military industrial complex corporations. You could include uh, the gigantic agribusinesses that are huge welfare queens, right? These are all, I would call them banksters as a category, as an archetype, even the ones that are not directly involved in banking. But this is, this is the category I'm trying to describe here, right? So they're banksters. Now, banksters don't really care about what individual people do with their, their lives, uh, with their, you know, sort of private morality, their private lives, with their free time, you know, they, banksters, now there are exceptions, there are banksters who also have a control freak streak running in them, these are, those are the exceptions. Most people who are either politicians or who, or who are um, the men behind the curtain moving politicians around like pieces on a chessboard fall into the category of banksters or control freaks, one or the other, and, and occasional sort of hybrids, but most of them are, are more one way or the other pretty clearly. Banksters don't really care that much most of the time, unless they have a control freak streak in them as well, and a few of them have, but generally they don't care if you're drinking or not. They don't really care if you're regularly attending church or not. They don't really care what your, you know, household family arrangement is, etc. That's, they don't care. As long as they're making money off of you one way or another, and again, I'm in the, when I talk about banksters, I'm not talking about every wealthy or successful business or business person. Um, I'm excluding from the archetype I'm creating here of bankster market entrepreneurs. I'm not, I'm not considering them banksters. I have no animosity towards a person or a company that becomes even wildly successful, but that does it without using any force or fraud on anybody that does it simply by providing goods and services, goods or services that consumers buy. Okay. So those types of individuals, those types of companies, I'm not, those are not banksters in my conception of the term, right? But a bankster uses the state for at least some of his, his acquisition of, of wealth and thereby also of influence and power. And they're just not concerned with what people do with sort of their private life, their personal life, 
etc. Right? Uh, modern modern equivalents, of course, would be you know the the people running Goldman Sachs and and that sort of thing. As long as they're making money, they don't even give a crap if you're. They don't they don't care if you're gay, straight. You know what what you put into your body, what you don't. As long as they're getting paid, and you're never getting getting uh, wise to what's really going on and figuring out effective ways to try and minimize your exploitation by them. You know, not not wasting time with with Wall Street Occupy demonstrations and crap like that, or wasting time with uh, getting involved in, in conventional electoral politics. That that's the kind of crap that the bankster elite is happy to see you get involved in because if you're devoting all of your time and energy and your resources to something like either conventional politics or pointless protests you're not doing anything productive that might actually jeopardize some of the banksters exploitation of you then you got the control freaks the control freaks are the people and they're more likely to be actual politicians themselves the control freaks. Banksters are more likely to be the, the men behind the curtain, so to speak, right? The, the hand that's moving the sock puppet of, of a politician. Control freaks are more likely to be the sock puppet. It's not to say that they don't have any influence on things they obviously do at times, but it's often a more superficial influence than the, than the banksters have. A control freak is generally not very savvy on economics and, and business and so on, money, how that works, they usually talk in easily debunked platitudes or emotionally driven statements when they talk about economics. These are the sorts of people who will support increasing the minimum wage because they really believe that it won't lead to higher unemployment amongst the poor. These are the people who will uh, support government spending to stimulate the economy even though it, it, it will mean printing money and running up debt because they really believe that will fix the economy and are clueless to the fact that it will cause inflation and other problems. So a control freak either does not know or does not care or I guess maybe both um, about really understanding economics and that sort of thing. They might have all sorts of opinions all day long about the economy, but they will not be informed opinions. They will speak in platitudes and, and emotional um, you know, arguments instead of anything factual or based on real economic theory. Banksters are not good at appealing to and getting the support of the common people. Control freaks are. They're is usually in the state and in the power elite, the political class, the elite class, the oligarchy, um, there's usually a symbiotic relationship between banksters and control freaks. The banksters need the control freaks because the control freaks are good, good at being populist. Whether they call themselves populists or not, that's, that's what they're good at, right? So the banksters need the control freaks to distract the voters from the real underlying uh, you know, realities of the system, especially the economic and political system. The control freaks need the banksters because the control freaks need funding for their causes and for their campaigns and for their elections and so on. So 
in um, the late 19th and early 20th century, the progressives would, in terms of the politicians who were progressives, they would primarily be control freaks. These are people concerned with regulating people's uh, behavior, uh, and the degree to which they wanted to regulate people's economic behavior mostly revolved around trying to socially engineer people to behave economically in a way that the, the progressives morally approved of. There's a strong puritanical streak in a lot of progressivism. And so um, read somebody like Thaddeus Russell. He's got a section in Renegade History of the United States where he talks about the degree to which progressives um, actually wanted to prevent lower-class people from being able to enjoy themselves. There was a rising standard of living amongst a lot of working-class people in the early 20th century, and a lot of them were becoming consumers. They were spending money on movies, Coney Island, um, fancier clothing, you know, what, what the... Um, the, the upper middle and upper class progressives would, be, would consider wasteful consumer spending, even though a lot of them also lived very well, too. But it was like a, a less flashy and gaudy uh, form of, of consumption, I guess, even though it often might involve spending more money, right? I mean, if you don't believe me, go look at, like, the house that Teddy Roosevelt lived in. This is not a guy who lived a Spartan existence most of the time. So the progressive politicians, your, your Teddy Roosevelt, your Woodrow Wilson, and all the lesser variations of that, um, you know, there were, there were lots of governors and senators and so on in the early 20th century that were birds of a feather with the two of them, were typically control freaks. And the degree to which they got involved in economics was the degree to which they saw it as a moral thing and wanted to exert a puritanical influence on people's economic behavior. But as I've mentioned before multiple times in this, uh, in this show, the progressive politicians were typically backed by members of the business elite. Even though many of these same progressive politicians were bad-mouthing business, they were often, whether they knew it or not, and sometimes I think they did, and sometimes I think they didn't, they were, they were often being supported in various ways by the very oligarchs they would get votes by denouncing. And so our two early progressive presidents, Teddy Roosevelt and Woodrow Wilson, both were supported by at least certain factions within the American oligarchy, right? So that's that's where progressive, progressivism's political successes came from, this symbiotic alliance wherein the politicians provided the control freak rhetoric, which could often be very demagogic one way or the other, whether they were bashing immigrants or whether they were bashing the, the oligarchy or whatever. And then the, the banksters provide the money to fund their campaigns and so on influence the media in favor of what they wanted. And again, a good book to start with anyway on this subject is, of course, one I've mentioned many times on the show before, Gabriel Kolko, The Triumph of Conservatism, where he shows you how much the, the elite actually was behind progressive, quote-unquote, reforms, right? And this alliance of banksters and control freaks during the progressive era, infected both parties. This is how you can explain Teddy Roosevelt and Woodrow Wilson, who, in terms of their personalities and their styles, might have been very different, but in terms of the substance of their policies, had a lot more in common than either of them would have had with, um, you know, a more old-school, like, Jeffersonian politician. 
So, you know, the populist party, control freaks. Progressive politicians, control freaks. Progressive politicians' backers financially, banksters. And basically what happens is, while the banksters are not super interested in a lot of control freak causes like banning vices and trying to regulate people's personal behavior and personal lives to, to whatever degree, while, while the banksters typically are not, that's not a big priority for them, they're willing to support and allow the control freak politicians to get some of that shit done that they want to do um, in order to kind of keep the relationship going. So while a lot of the banksters maybe weren't super gung-ho uh, prohibitionists in the early 20th century, nonetheless, they they had to kind of go along with prohibitionists sometimes. They couldn't really oppose it because a lot of the progressive politicians they were supporting for other reasons were prohibitionists. So they have to, the banksters have to allow the, the control freaks to get some of their shit done as far as banning things sometimes and uh, having the state intervene into people's personal lives in various ways, whether it's trying to regulate what people are and are not allowed to put into their own body, you know, trying to crack down on drugs, for a while trying to ban alcohol, um, cracking down on prostitution, cracking down on gambling, vice, all these sorts of things. And in return, the control freak sock puppet politician, while he may rhetorically attack the oligarchy, uh, will refrain from ever doing anything that might seriously undermine the source of their power, which a true oligarch deserving of that label, um, the source of, of their wealth and power is invariably the state. I mean, if you're just a wealthy, successful free market entrepreneur, I don't consider you an oligarch. Oligarch is a term that has political connotations. And so to me, you're not an oligarch unless, you know, at least a, a high degree of your, your wealth comes from the state in one way or another, and also you're heavily enmeshed in using the state to augment and buttress that wealth. So anyway, banksters and control freaks. These are the two categories of people that I think are responsible for a hell of a lot of evils throughout human history, but particularly for the last 100 to 125 years or so ever since whatever you might consider the, the early phase of the progressive era. And banksters and control freaks are infested in both major political parties in the United States. Now, they're, they're different. They might be different individuals or different groups of banksters and control freaks, although in the case of banksters, they're not as different. But, you know, the Republicans have the Koch brothers. The Democrats have George Soros. And we could name other names, like I said, I don't have notes here, so I don't have a shit list to go down. But we could name other names. We could name other, you know, multi-hundred millionaires and even billionaires that back one party or the other consistently. And sometimes those interests will dabble in control-free issues. But again, I'm always skeptical. I'm always skeptical, uh, initially anyway, of oligarchs being control freaks and vice versa, unless an individual seems to demonstrate a real pattern. But both parties have their their banksters that back them. You know, both parties get money from the military-industrial complex, from big agra, um, 
all that kind of stuff. They might get it from slightly different groups or in different proportions. But make no mistake about it, they both have their banksters pulling their levers. If they didn't, then how could you explain the remarkable similarities despite swinging back and forth between the two parties for the last hundred plus years? And then, of course, you have somebody like Goldman Sachs, and this also applies to a lot of the other big you know, investment banks and things, where they hedge their bets by always supporting both parties. So the banksters exploit you economically and use the political process to do that. The control freaks are interested in controlling other aspects of your lives, um, which may or may not be economic in nature, but are primarily they're looking at it more from their own personal perception of what's moral and trying to ban things that are immoral. And th these are where the wedge issues come in. These are where the wedge issues come in, both historical and current. Control freaks get votes by turning people against other people. And it ends up having the, the net effect, whether intentional or not, it, you can't prove it, but sometimes I suspect it might be intentional sometimes. Um, when control freaks drive at a wedge issue of one type or another, what it does is it often artificially divides groups of, of non-elite, non-oligarchs, groups of quote-unquote average people, and turn them into bitter enemies against each other. So, for example, two groups of middle-class people both of which are being screwed over by the banking oligarchy, but here comes a control freak demagogue politician, pounds the issue of, let's just take an example, gay marriage, right? Now suppose one group of middle class people being screwed by the banksters are evangelical Christians who think that the state should be intimately involved in love and marriage and should, you know, try to ban gayness as much as possible. And then suppose the other group of middle class people are more kind of culturally liberal people who think that gays should be able to get married and whatever. Well, smack that iron wedge of an issue into the wood, and it splits the wood. So you split people that might potentially be able to present a unified front against the oligarchy. You split them, make them bitter enemies against each other over an issue like gay marriage. And you could find plenty of other examples, both current and, and past, um, you know, issues of race would fall under this, this rubric. Anything having to do with vice, with quote-unquote sin, you can always turn people who think the state should ban whatever against people who, who don't think so and get them fighting about that. And of course, the politician who uses the wedge issue, whose wedge ends up being the largest on that issue at that time, wins elections. And so whatever oligarchs are backing him financially win power and influence by that even though the oligarch didn't run on issues like, I'm going to help Wall Street screw you, um, that's what his policies will have the net effect of doing. Again, whether he knows it or not, I think some of the smarter politicians know this. Some of the dumber ones that are like, you know, just not economically literate, are, they're useful idiots for the banksters. They don't even realize they're serving them. So control freaks might be pushing to ban alcohol in the early 20th century, uh, ban and, and keep banned and amp up the, the um, enforcement of drug laws. Control freaks might want to ban guns or certain types of guns. Control freaks might want to regulate your personal relationships and sex, sexual activity, um, your TV viewing habits, right? And again, everyone tends to think of like right-wing evangelical Christians as being control freaks. 
And they typically are, unless they're one of the rare evangelical Christians that's like a genuine anarchist. And they are out there, and I know some of them, but, you know, statistically they're very rare. But to be fair, the left and the Democratic Party have their share of hardcore control freaks, too. They just might not always want to control the same things. But, you know, Democrats are more likely to want to control what you eat, what you don't eat, more like social engineering Cass Sunstein nudge type things, right? Trying to use the state to make you eat healthier or exercise more or use the state to ban your guns because it's for your own good, right? So they both have their nanny state elements, the both parties. It's just in the Republican Party, it's more of like a control freakism based on traditions and a very... Um, fundamentalist interpretation of Christianity, in the Democratic Party, it's based more on maybe nanny state type of like, well, it's for your own good type of a thing. Banning things that are bad for you, or dangerous, or what have you. So, you know, think of like the world of Demolition Man, when Sylvester Stallone wakes up in the future, and he's in this, what was it, San Angeles? Um... A, a California kind of city-state of the future, and there's this guy in charge. Great movie, by the way, if you've never seen it. It's, it's, very, it's very amusing. Um, and, and while it's not pure, pure libertarian, it's got a strong libertarian streak in the message of the movie. A little bit of statism um, with law enforcement, but, but there's also a lot of libertarian... De Dennis Leary's character in, in, it, in the movie is great. Maybe I'll link to that in the show notes. Maybe I'll throw the Amazon link to Demolition Man in my Amazon links for the episode if I if I publish it. And uh, maybe I'll also link to just the one clip on YouTube, if I can find it, of Dennis Leary's rant near the end of the movie. But in that movie, um, it's a society that at first glance appears like very nice and clean and whatever, but it's also like a soft, smiley face fascism place where everything that is quote-unquote bad for you is illegal, and that includes, you know various types of food, it includes foul language, it includes even uh, physically having sex. So make no mistake, just because they might not always be as explicitly religious about things does not mean that the, the left and the Democratic Party in America don't have and, and have had all along a very strong puritanical streak. They absolutely do. They just might focus it on different things than, um, than, than conservatives would. So they might not want to ban gay relationships or, you know, make it impossible for gays to get married, but they might want to ban something else. So banksters and control freaks, this is what makes the state go round. This is what makes modern so-called democratic politics, where there's elections at least, this is what makes them do what they do. This is what gives us the outcomes we've gotten. Banksters and control freaks. Think about it. Let's just conduct... If you, if you still have doubts that banksters and control freaks between the two of them and their, their symbiotic relationship um, explain most of the evil, um, you know, like on the political level in the world, conduct a thought experiment. Imagine that you could um, assemble in, I don't know, enormous sports arenas, all of the members of the two parties in America who are significant, who are either people who hold political office, 
people who are serious contenders for political office or people who are significant within the party apparatus and bureaucracy itself, right? So all, all the politicians, all the possible potential politicians, and all the people who are really running the party. So we're not talking about individual voters, and we're not talking about the really low-level grassroots party people who, you know, in the election cycle might go put up a few signs and knock on a few doors or whatever. We're talking about the party, the, the real movers and shakers of the party, and the politicos themselves, right? So we've, we've, we've gotten them into um, two arenas, right? Two gigantic uh, stadiums, I should say. Now imagine you could use a special, wonderful, anarchist laser beam that disappears certain people. And you set this thing, and it's a wonderful, magical, anarchist laser beam. You set the dials on it so that it will disappear, not kill. We're not advocating violence here. It can just magically disappear as if they just had never been. Um, banksters, right? Uh, people who actually are banksters themselves, or people who, um, you know, are, are tools of the banksters, right? And you fly over the two stadiums in a Zeppelin, you know, in the Goodyear blimp or whatever, and you, you blast them both good, right? And you set it on a real wide uh, laser beam where, you know, you shoot it and it just hits thousands of people. And you just, you know, spray both stadiums from the air with this magical laser beam, right? And then, after you've gone over both stadiums containing the people of both parties and done this, you then flip the dial on the magical anarchist laser beam to control freak, right? And, and of course, on the banks are setting, it might have taken out a few control freaks too, but obviously there'd be some that wouldn't qualify. And then you make another pass, and you, and you hose them down again, this time with it set on control freak. Now, if you did this, as I just described, how many people do you think would be left? Do you think it'd be any at all? And if there were any, there'd be very few. There'd be very few, I think, if any. So, to, to wrap up, Mitt Romney, bankster. Rick Santorum, control freak. Banksters want to exploit you economically. Control freaks want to control your lives. Both parties are infested with them. Both parties run on them. They're, they're the, the, the engine that makes the parties go, combined together. You have to realize that. You have to realize it is the in the nature of political parties as part of what they are, that this will happen. Occasionally, the banksters or the control freaks might get the upper hand. By the way, if one of them gets the upper hand, and I'm against both of these people, and I'm against all these institutions, but if one of them gets the upper hand, it, you're actually better off if it's the banksters most of the time, because as much as they'll exploit you and rip you off, when control freaks get dominant upper hand in a state is when it really turns into a hellscape, okay? Banksters helped some of the Nazis rise to power in Germany. But once the Nazis had power, they got leverage over the banksters in Germany. And while some of the banksters continued to make a lot of money in Germany, they were clearly not in the driver's seat once the Nazis had, had really established control. The great communist dictators of the 20th century, using great in the sense of, you know, magnitude, not of, not of morality, would be control freaks, right? Lenin, Trotsky, Stalin... Mao Zedong, Pol Pot, these are all control freaks. These are not banksters. And while they might have, on occasion, worked with banksters for tactical reasons, in general, once they were ensconced in power, they kind of took the dominant driver's seat and either eliminated the banksters or put them into a submissive, uh, subservient role alongside them. 
And so as much as a kleptocracy run by banksters is not appealing, a state run by unbridled control freaks is actually a hell of a lot scarier. So, not again, not saying I want either of these people in charge. Um, I wish I had my magical libertarian anarchist ray gun, but such a thing does not exist, and we might violate the non-aggression principle anyway, although you could argue for self-defense, I suppose. Anyway, um, this unscripted, off-the-reservation, crazy rambling, I hope, has made some sense. I hope it's given you some stuff to think about. Thanks for listening. Remember to check out my website, profcj.org. There you can find all kinds of stuff, show notes, links, ways to support the show. Um, you can connect with the show on Facebook and Twitter as well. You can support the show financially by making a donation either through PayPal or Bitcoin. And there's a, a page on the site, profcj.org donate, where you get instructions on this. You can also um, support the show by buying stuff from Amazon by going through my affiliate links first, and I get a little percentage there as well. Help keep the show up and running and growing. Remember, if you have any questions or comments about this particular episode, please feel free to post them at the comment section for that episode on my website. And you can also email me as well, profcj at profcj.org. By the way, just a side note, I'm, I'm continuing along my path of the Scholar Warrior. I mentioned one of the things I needed to uh, get you know back on the trolley with, so to speak, uh, was physical fitness. And uh, before I got in the car, started driving home and started talking to you here, I hit the gym at the college where I work, lifted some weights, and then I went from there to a uh, state park that's sort of on my way home, just a slight little detour. And I did a, a good uh, close to an hour hike on some fairly rugged up and down terrain uh, in the state park. So I got me a good workout and I'm doing what I can to hone my Scholar Warrior's edge. And I hope that you're doing the same in whatever it is you're trying to develop, uh, whatever skills and qualities and so on in your path of individual self-cultivation. And if you're not on that path, um, maybe consider uh, seriously getting on it. I again, it's up to you what, what things you're cultivating exactly. But the idea of individual self-cultivation as a way to be um, prepared for the future and adaptable and so on. Because unfortunately, for now, we do still have to live in a world of banksters and control freaks. And the more versatile of an individual you are, the more qualities and skills and so on you possess and you can bring to bear on life, the better you're going to be able to adapt and survive and even thrive in this crazy, crazy world of banksters and control freaks. Also, real quick, um, last thing just want to mention, please consider donating to LRN.FM to help get their satellite system uh, back up and running to broadcast to the continent of Africa. Um, they had been on it free of charge for a number of years and then suddenly uh, the deal was no good no more and now they have to come up with some money in somewhat of a hurry to try and get um, the broadcast back up and running in Africa and this show is part of the podcast stable on LRN.FM and lots of other great shows many of which I listen to on a regular basis on LRN.FM as well and um, surely if there is a part of the world they could use a giant dose of liberty-related ideas uh, more than any other. It is the continent of Africa, which is a you know, beautiful place with, with a lot of uh, wonderful resources and, and rich history, but sadly a, a part of the world that, at least in recent years, for a variety of different reasons, um, has had a lot of problems. And um, Anyway, I'm one of those people that thinks liberty is uh, a good solution to just about any problem you can think of. So if you agree with me on that and you want to do something that'll help 
spread messages of liberty to a place that really could use them, consider donating to their campaign. I'll put the link to that in the show notes for this episode as well. So thank you very much for listening. I hope uh, you found this uh, interesting and thought-provoking. I hope I haven't wasted your time. This has been Prof. CJ on the Dangerous History Podcast. As always, doing my utmost to help you learn the past, understand the present, and prepare for the future. (laughs) 